Good morning. We're in First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, and this is one of the most stinging rebukes that Paul has for the church at Corinth, and it's because, I think, of the significance of the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. Those are all names for the same meal that we share when we share the bread and the cup, so loaded with significance. So we're going to read from verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. That's kind of tantalizing. We'd like to know what those other things are. A freshman in college, a course I took was Philosophy 101 from Professor Black. He always wore black and a bolo tie. The first class discussed 
the truth. And one big question was, what is the nature of truth? Now, notice, it's not what is the truth, what is the nature of truth? How do you recognize truth? And out of a long and uncomfortable silence, a room full of freshman college students, the ideas and answers began to flow. And as I think about it now, Professor Black was, was very patient and steered us with more questions. We wanted the answer. We just wanted him to tell us what's, what's the answer. What is the nature of truth? But he wanted to push us. He wanted us to think. He wanted us to reason and use our heads. I suppose his answer, even the right answer, would never have been our answer unless we thought our way and reasoned our way to get it. And maybe that's why I remember our answer so clearly. What was our answer? Well, we concluded, and I don't think this exhausts the nature of truth, but at the end of that first class, we concluded that truth, if it's truth, must be available to everyone. Professor Black seemed pleased. He said that would be a good starting point for the next meeting. But I tell you about this not to entangle us in the merits of a Philosophy 101 answer, but to highlight the impact that that answer had on my life and my development as a new believer in Jesus Christ. Because it really caused me to see in a new way, at least for me, that the gospel really is good news. You know, that's the meaning of the word Gospel. Gospel is kind of a sounding out of the Greek word, and it means good news, a good announcement. You see, the gospel, I realized, is not just for some, it's for everyone. Never mind your race, your color, your creed, the friends you keep your track or police record, your trade, your education, neighborhood, or country. The news is, whether we're fit or not, slow or fast, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, God, the creator of the world, meets you and me right where you are at in the gospel, in the person of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And where is it that Jesus meets you and me? Right where we're at. Where is that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where everyone gets equal. At the cross, we're all the same, not only in our need, but in our Savior, 
who reconciled us not only to God, but to one another. As Paul put it, and this is from his letter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, creating in himself one new person in place of two, to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through Jesus we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the rest of the household of God. Not two, but one. In the cross, in Jesus. The cross is the cornerstone. True north, true north for our lives as the church, the people of God. The church is an amalgamation, an assembly, a getting together of those who have been reconciled with God and one another. When we're baptized, we're put to death, enacting a death that has happened in spiritual reality to our lives and raised to newness of life. And that's associated with what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. And when we take the Lord's Supper, as it were, when we all sit at the table, we sit together as one with equality. There's no prime seats. <laughs> There's no chief seats and cheap seats. We're all seated together at that table. And at the center of that table is the cross, our peace, Jesus Christ, the, the reconciliation that has been won for us with God, our Father, and with one another. And that is what we are to remember. We're to bring that into view. If the heart of the gospel is the cross and this glorious truth, because it's available to everyone. And there we are reconciled to God and with one another. Then the cross should show up in the church. I mean, not literally, not that we need to erect a wooden cross or a metal cross or project a cross, but the cross should be evident in our lives. And if you were to just read through 1 Corinthians, you would see that it shows up in Paul's life. 
when he talks about his weakness in coming to them or his dying daily, his outlook on life, the cross should show up in our lives and in the church. When I was a a youngster, five and six, I had a friend that lived down the street. We lived on Chelsea Avenue. My parents used to fight over the pronunciation of that name. I think my mom said Chelsea, and my dad said, no, it's Chelsea. Well, just down the street on Chelsea, or Chelsea, was David Phipps. And David Phipps' father was a pastor. And he invited me to go to church with him. And I went to church with him. And everyone at church called each other brother or sister. I thought that was kind of odd. So if I met you, I'd... Sister Harriet, Brother Michael. I suppose it could be, as it was for me, thought to be a little bit corny, unless it's real. Because the idea of brothers and sisters has to do with parity and equality and equal footing in the household of God. That's the way God sees it. That's not the way some prominent Corinthians saw it. And we've seen evidence of that in our weeks in this letter. I mean, if there's any place that they should see each other as brothers and sisters, it's at the Lord's table. The memorial service of the Messiah's death and our reconciliation with God. That table is our Ellis Island. The Ellis Island that is famous, no longer in service, where people who wanted to come to America for a new life were admitted as citizens to this country. That's our Ellis Island. Paul's most stinging criticism of the Corinthians in the letter comes here in verses 17 through 22. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, that's, that's horrible. He says, you're cliquish or cliquish. <laughs> I found, I checked it out this week, by the way. There, you know, there's a new feature on the internet if you want to find out how to pronounce a word. And I guess in Britain they say clique, and we in America say click. But it means that it's a small group that excludes others, that's identified by things held in common. And they were cliquish. And Paul, I notice the translations say, I believe it in part. I think he believes it entirely. In fact, it can be translated that way. The word part can also mean matter. I believe the matter. I'm convinced of it. Would be a legitimate reading. And he goes on to say, and I think rather, I think there's a a hint of sarcasm in verse 18, as if to say, and why wouldn't I? Of course you have to make distinctions among you so that the notables 
are properly recognized. And that would certainly be the case at a dinner. Now, when we observe the Lord's Supper and we gather together, uh, we sit in rows. I wish we sat at a, we had a large dinner. In, in those days, they actually had a large dinner, just as Jesus in, was in the midst of a, a dinner of great meaning, a Passover dinner. And in the midst of that dinner, he took certain elements, the bread and one of the cups, and empowered that bread and cup with a new meaning, a meaning that was going to explode with his death and resurrection. And in a similar way, the earliest church had a large dinner, and then in the midst of that dinner, they observed the bread and the cup. But the Corinthians have dragged their practices from dinners, banquets, symposiums, in which people had special seating, and certain people were actually stratified and distinguished by the food and their location at the table. And some even think that some were in one place, and you remember, they would recline. And of course, archaeologists have figured out how much room there would be like within a house or a place, and some might have even been put off into another room. And Paul's targeting that because it's sending a message that's contrary to the message that the meal, the supper, the table, the Lord's table sends. A very powerful message. And therefore, he says in verse 20, which is just stunning, when you come together at the same place, which is literally, literally there, at the same place, just as when in chapter 2 of Acts, the first verse, it says they were gathered together at the same place. He says, when you come together at the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, what is he saying? Well, in other words, if you were eating the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table, you wouldn't show partiality and treat your brother and sister in Christ as though they don't have a seat of honor like you at his table. In effect, Paul says, your purpose is not the Lord's purpose, is not the purpose of the supper. You may say the right words, but your actions speak louder than your words. And in verses 21 and 22, he says, each of you, most of the translations read, goes ahead as if they started before the rest got there. But this word can legitimately mean devours. Each of you devours his own dinner during the Lord's Supper. And one is hungry and another drunk. That's a pretty ugly characterization. Yes, they would bring food together, but some didn't have. And some have a lot. And the haves exclude the have-nots. 
by going ahead with their dinner party, so to speak, and excluding the others who have nothing. And at their party, which is sumptuous, the wine flows freely and some end up drunk. And Paul says in verse 22, two things that are just... He says, this shows contempt for the church. He poses it as a question. Do you have contempt for the church? Now, now you see so powerfully that the church is not a building. The church is not so much a place as much as the place created by the people of the Lord who come together. And that place is never more important than when it is centered on the Lord's Supper. Our Ellis Island, so to speak, symbolically. Our commemoration of our reconciliation to the Lord and one another. And Paul says, you show contempt for the church. The, the assembly, that's the word, the gathering. And then he says, not only that, but you humiliate, you shame those who have nothing. Showing that distinctions continue to survive. That there is a divide between the way we perceive one another and treat one another. So if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you destroy the character of this meal, you destroy the character of what is at the center of your gathering when you gather as a church through your conduct, what would we have to know to change our conduct? In verse 22, Paul's already said, you show contempt and you put to shame. He's saying you have to change the way you think about the church and about this meal, this supper that we celebrate in commemoration of who we are in Christ. A second thing he says is in turning to the Lord himself. He says, let's look at this meal. He had already given them this. It wasn't though as though they didn't know, verses 23 through 27, particularly 23 and 4 and 5. But he says, the bread, this bread represents the presence of the Lord. It looks back to the cross and Jesus' sacrificial death, but it represents his presence in that we do it in remembrance, remembrance of him. He says the cup, it looks forward to that which is the outcome of the cross, the new covenant, our new status and identity in Christ. And even the coming of Jesus Christ which is a part of that covenant. And we recognize the presence 
of Him in this, when we do this in remembrance of Him. And then in verse 26, very powerful, and this is something that that Paul adds. Perhaps he had added it before, but it becomes the thrust of why he brings up verses 23, 24, and 25, which goes back to the Lord. And he says, it was handed to, to, on to you just as it was handed on to me. This comes from the Lord, he says. And he says, by way of explanation, every time you eat this bread and drink, drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we see the past and the future in that statement. That's very important. We proclaim, we declare. In other words, he says, in doing this, there is a message. The medium is the message. It's not just something we do, but what we do is declaring something. It's professing something. It's saying something to the world. It's saying something that no one else says except those who gather in his name to observe this meal. And it declares his death in a very real and present way until he comes. And in view is not only the cross, but his coming. The cross and his coming. Let, just for a moment, to try and get the power of this, let's go back to chapter 2 just for a second. And verses in, the whole chapter is powerful because Paul says, I came in weakness. And, and many people, they make light of the cross. They even make fun of the cross. You know, even as Jesus was on the cross, religious leaders and bystanders of his day said, if you're who you are, you, who you say you are, come on down, save yourself. Some people think the cross is ludicrous. Paul in chapter 2 says, you know, why didn't I come to you with, with power and swag and impressive words? Why wasn't that my way? He says, I, I chose in verse 2 to come to you know, knowing nothing but Jesus and his cross. And then he explains this in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, if, if people really knew what God was up to, he says, You're, you are all so influenced by a worldly wisdom. But Paul says, the wisdom of God is not the world's wisdom. He says, if you really had a hint as to God's wisdom, you would understand what God was up to in the cross. But because the world and its rulers, even those all powers and principalities, rulers, earthly and beyond, 
He says, they would not have put Jesus to death if they knew what God was up to in the cross. That's what he says. And he calls him the Lord of glory. And then he looks ahead in chapter 15 to his coming, and it's associated with the resurrection and who Jesus really is in the resurrection. And our resurrection, our new existence in life is caught up in what he has to say in chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new existence that eclipses our existence now in the first Adam. He calls Jesus in verse 45 the last Adam. There's not going to be a third Adam. And then, in verses 23 through 28, he says, when Jesus comes, there's going to be the resurrection, and then there's going to be the end. When Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, listen, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. Now this is the Lord that is present in the supper. This is the Lord that is veiled to the world, but is visible to his own people. A lordship that is celebrated when we gather no more profoundly than when we gather to remember. And in a way, Paul is saying that the past is not past. Jesus is not away in the memory of what he has done in history. This Lord is present. And he is not away in the future, even though we anticipate and long for his coming. The one who is coming is present. And in our remembering, we are remembering the reality and the presence of Jesus Christ who reconciled us and who is coming again. Now, I, remember, I realize day to day that God's involvement in our lives is sometimes more obvious to us when we look back. And I suppose uh, the trick of faith and I don't mean anything disparaging by that, I'm just trying to make the point, is to realize that he's involved in our lives right now. I'm a big fan of Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a novel called Wise Blood, and it has a character in it. His name is Hazel Motts. Hazel Motts. And he starts a new church, the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. That's what he calls it, the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. And he preaches on the streets and on the corners. And here's just a part. You know, this is a character in a novel. Here's just a part of what he's preaching. I believe in a new Jesus, one that can't waste his blood redeeming people with it because he's all man. 
ain't got any God in him. My church is the church without Christ. Now, why would Flannery O'Connor write a fictional story with a character like Hazel Motts who wants to start a new church with a new Jesus, and Jesus is in small case, not capitalized, like our Jesus. A new Jesus, a Jesus that's all man, and he's got no God in him at all. He's not about using his blood to redeem others. Well, Connor is exposing through exaggeration an absurdity that exists in many churches. And she exposes this absurdity by absurdity, the absurdity of Mott's preaching. I suspect, I imagine, that a reader and a churchgoer might just think in reading Wise Blood, her novel, you know what? I might as well attend Mott's church. For apart from my church's social benefits, I don't actually have much use for a divine Jesus. In fact, at one point, Mott shouts on the corner, help yourself to salvation in the holy church of Christ without Christ. Help yourself to salvation. The church, an organization of people, brings many benefits. But the church of Jesus Christ, not one without Christ, but with Christ, is embedded in the supernatural divine work of Jesus Christ based on who he was, what he did on that Christ, and the fact that he's coming again. And that needs to steal us against some of the silliness of this world and the values of this world, and the things that preoccupy our minds and hearts, and to refresh us when we come together at the Lord's Supper to understand what it is that Jesus has done for us and the implications of that cross and his coming for the way we see one another, treat one another, and behave as the church of Jesus Christ. That is a message we are declaring when we take the bread and cup. And it's that which explains the strange things that have been going on in Corinth that Paul mentions in verses 27 through 32. He sets up kind of a court scene. And he says there's going to be a future judgment at which those who refuse the gospel, that's the use of the word world in verse 32, of those who do not but accept but refuse Jesus Christ. He says there's going to be a future judgment which will, at which the world will be condemned. Part of the strange privilege of being a member of God's people is to have our judgment in advance, the chance to avoid being judged on the last day. So in verse 32, when the Lord judges us in the present, the result is discipline. Things happen to us 
when we can take as punishments, things that we take as punishments and warnings, because at the Lord's Supper, we have a moment when the future comes to meet us in the present, and this judgment and discipline is brought into focus there and giving us a chance to make corrections in our lives the way we see ourselves, see the Lord, see our actions and our behaviors. Making sure our behavior is appropriate or we can face the scrutiny and judgment of the Lord himself if we ignore the disciplining work of the Lord in our lives. And right in the middle of this, he says in verse 29, we read here in verse 29, we eat and drink judgment if we do not eat and drink without careful regard or discernment for the body. Now, in chapter 10, verse 17, he spoke of the, the body as the church, a single body. He, in chapter 12, the next chapter, will go on to explain at length that body is Christ's body and all of its individual members. In chapter 10, he linked sharing in Christ's body with the bread of the Lord's Supper. And here in chapter 11, the body of the Lord has been spoken of with reference to the bread itself. Now, follow me. In verse 29, I think in the NIV it says the body of Christ. The word Christ is not there. It just says judgment to the body. What body is he talking about? He sees the bread as the body of Christ or representative of the body of Christ and the body of Christ which was crucified on the cross and at which we are reconciled together and the body of all of us in this room and the body of believers all around the world. Paul sees it as indivisible. And that's why he says, when you treat one another in a way, when we treat one another in a way that's not becoming of the very work that has been wrought in our hearts that reconciled us to God and to one another, he says, we are eating judgment on the body. Derwin Gray has written a book. I pre-ordered it. It's called The High Definition Leader. And Derwin Gray is a, uh, a wonderful pastor. And he is black. And at one point in his book, which I've excerpted and read, he says this, the gospel makes us color-blessed not colorblind. The cross births a new multi-ethnic people who define themselves by the color of Jesus' blood, not the color of their skin. The cross births a new people who view themselves as equals because they are reconciled to Christ and to one another. 
The bloody cross of Christ is now the driving force that influences us more than our culture. And once again, Paul noted, we are Abraham's offspring because God in Jesus is faithful to complete his promise to Abraham of creating a big, beautiful, multicolored family of unity and reconciliation. He says this is what drives the high-definition leader. In other words, he says this is... This is the truth that's got to just percolate and bubble and push and prod us as leaders and as the people of God. Will you stand with me? You are all smart people. There's work to be done in our lives. We are the people of God. What is our message to the world? That's what is brought into focus. And as we, each one, make Christ preeminent in our lives, we will make the gospel prominent as his church, his people, to the world. Let me pray for us. When I close, I'll be up here along with other pastors, elders. If you want to come and pray with us, intercede for someone, we invite you to come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. Identifier. of who we are, your people. We love you. We want to serve you and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.